From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, also known as GERD, occurs when stomach acid flows back up into the esophagus. We'll learn about treatment for GERD and how lifestyle changes can improve the condition. If you develop symptoms at night, not eating for uh, three hours before going to sleep. Certain foods, spicy foods, chocolate, spearmint, peppermint, tomato-based foods, caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, that if these foods bother you, don't take them. Bed elevation, not eating late, and not overeating are probably much more critical. Also on the program, we'll discuss the difficult topic of miscarriage and tips for prevention of the common knee injury, the torn ACL. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Acid reflux and heartburn are common problems that a lot of people have from time to time. But when heartburn and acid reflux happen more often and begin to interfere with your daily life, you may be suffering from GERD. If it's bad enough, they put a special name on it. And I get to try to say it. GERD. Gastroesophageal reflux disease. That's how you say that? (laughs) Yeah, that is. Yeah, it's better known as GERD. That makes it easier for me. (laughs) It's a chronic digestive disease that occurs when stomach acid flows back into your food pipe. That's your esophagus. The backwash, the reflux, irritates the lining of your esophagus, and then you've got GERD. Most people can manage the discomfort of GERD with lifestyle changes and over-the-counter medications, but some people with GERD may need stronger medications or even surgery to reduce the symptoms. Here to talk about GERD and how to treat it is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Jeffrey Alexander. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Alexander. Oh, thank you. Well, a GERD is an easier term than gastroesophageal reflux disease, that's for <laughs> sure. a so, long way. <laughs> tell us about this condition, because I'm, I'm sure you see it a lot in your office. Yeah, it's quite a common condition, uh, Tom. It results from, as you say, uh, acid refluxing back up from the stomach uh, into the esophagus, the swallowing tube. Usually there's, there's a muscle there called the lower esophageal sphincter that kind of works like a one-way valve and generally allows opens up and lets the food down but then stays closed and stops the acid from coming up now more frequently in our society associated probably with obesity that uh, this valve has become kind of incompetent and not functioning properly and we're seeing more and more uh, gastroesophageal reflux so you're saying that um, normally this this valve functions uh, properly but if you become too heavy then there's just too much pressure on the stomach forcing the food back up to the esophagus is that the way you explain it yeah clearly the increased intra-abdominal pressure associated with with obesity as well as over distension of the stomach from eating large meals mm. kind of puts pressure on that weakened valve and, and, and we see the uh, the reflux. Does the valve continue to weaken so that it gets worse as you go along? That's a good question. I think that uh, generally it, it, it will, but that's more of a function, I think, of the weight uh, and the dietary measures. And if people lose weight, their symptoms may improve significantly. Uh, even though the valve itself hasn't gotten any stronger, it's just uh, working against less of a gradient. So the valve itself doesn't recover. It doesn't. Is it once it's shot, it's shot, or like yeah. you said, if you lose weight, then it does resolve the symptoms. You may it may help your symptoms, but I think 
clearly, I think once the valve has failed, it's it's pretty much failed. Uh, but the gradient or the pressure it's working against, if you lose weight and don't eat so much, is a little easier, and you may do well with a partially deficient uh, valve. So I take it to mean that obesity is the number one risk factor. Obesity is the number one risk factor. Are there others that we ought to know about? Uh, there is a genetic component. Uh, believe it or not, someone, uh, Al Cameron, who was here, did a study. It's hard to imagine how you could do this, but they figured out that about 30% of reflux is genetic. Really? Yeah, he did a study. So with even if you're not obese, if you have a family history, you're, you're much more prone to get it. Yes, and you certainly can see this in young, thin people as well. The frequency goes up as your BMI, body, as your weight <laughs> your body mass yeah. index. Yep. Okay. What, what is the difference between heartburn and GERD? Uh, heartburn is, is, a, is, a, is a symptom. It's, it's the sensation of a discomfort under the breastbone, generally burning in quality, that typically comes on after eating, particularly eating big meals, may be brought on with certain foods, tomato-based foods, spicy foods, tends to be relieved with uh, antacid. That's the symptom. Heartburn and then regurgitation is a symptom of liquid material coming from the stomach back up toward the mouth. Heartburn and regurgitation are the two major symptoms for gastroesophageal reflux disease. So uh, symptoms, but the but the condition itself is GERD. Is GERD. Now everyone refluxes. The normal population refluxes to a certain degree when you have an excess amount of reflux. Uh, and develop symptomatology from it, that's when it becomes gastroesophageal reflux disease. So, of course, the problem with this is that it can mimic uh, symptoms of a heart attack or ischemia of the heart or coronary artery disease where the, the uh, arteries to the heart get clogged up, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, the nerves in the, in the chest, uh, they're not so specific to one particular area that we can sense it. And, you know, someone gets a heart attack, they get pain in their left arm, and someone gets pain in their chest. And reflux can do a lot of the same things. And, and frequently these people end up in the emergency room uh, trying to exclude a heart attack. So there are a lot of reasons for, for chest pain or upper abdominal pain. How do you know it's GERD? Uh, well, it's kind of a clinical diagnosis. And whenever, whenever there's any uncertainty, you want to be sure it's not the heart. Nobody, nobody dies from GERD. But you want to be sure it's not heart disease. And as a gastroenterologist, I'll have, you know, two or three people a year referred to me for reflux that actually have coronary artery disease. It can be difficult. So it's, you always rule out the heart first. And how do you do that? Well, that may require uh, stress testing or angiography, looking at the cardiac vessels. Um, so, the, so angiography means that you inject some dye uh, through a, a vein down in the groin and you uh, look at the arteries of the heart and make sure that they aren't clogged up. Correct. Exactly. Okay. Uh, and then once you've ruled out the heart, then are there any tests that you can do specific for GERD for or GERD. is it bo- mostly based on history? Yeah. And I would say, we, you know, we don't do cardiac testing in the vast majority of people with GERD. Hmm. But in someone not responding or with a history that could be either, or particularly people that get you know chest discomfort when they exert themselves, uh, then we, we exclude uh, cardiac with official testing. Usually the diagnosis of GERD is pretty much clinical. It has the right story. As, as we described, that typical heartburn would be a classic uh, description of GERD. Uh, and often we'll treat treat just based on the history. Now, if the story is not so classic or the response to medication is not 
very very good and quick, then we'll do uh, formal testing. Now, there's certain things we can do. We can look down with a scope called an upper gastrointestinal endoscopy and look for damage to the esophagus. Now, the esophagus may have evidence of acid reflux disease, but may not. Over 50% of the people with symptomatic GERD don't have any damage to their esophagus, so their endoscopy would be normal. So it, what you're saying there is that the esophagus doesn't like acid, and it, it, it shouldn't have acid on it. So if you reflux, it might cause some inflammation or something, some redness or some changes that you can see in the lower part of the tube. Right, yeah, you'll see little superficial ulcerations or deeper ulcerations. But again, some you know the degree of acid exposure injury is kind of more correlated with how much acid you have in the esophagus, how long. And often people who reflux for hours at night while they're asleep may have more d- injury, whereas the group of people that reflux during the day when they overeat, they may not have in their acid in their esophagus for that long time period, but they feel it. So they may have a lot of symptoms and, and, and no endoscopic disease, as you can see. We need to take our break, but before we do, I just want to make sure. Is GERD the new name for what we used to call acid reflux? Are those the same thing? Yes, I think, okay. yeah, I think GERD, yeah, it's the same thing. GERD, just when we, when we apply disease, then it applies right. symptomatology rather than just what we call physiologic or a normal degree of acid reflux. All right, it's a clerical thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Gastroesophageal reflux disease with an expert, gastroenterologist Dr. Jeff Alexander. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about treatment, including lifestyle changes, mainly losing weight, I suspect, medications and their side effects, plus surgery and complications. But first, myth or matter of fact, Everyone with GERD should raise the head of their bed. We'll find out when we return. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is gastroenterologist, digestive disease expert, Dr. Jeff Alexander. Our topic is GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, myth or matter of fact. Yes, myth or matter of fact, everyone with GERD should raise the head of their bed. Myth or a fact? Yeah, a bit of a it myth. Makes sense. A bit of a fact, get too. get gravity on your side, huh? <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, people that reflux have night, who wake up at night with heartburn, they clearly need to elevate the head of their bed because gravity helps prevent this problem when they're lying down. Now, there's a vast majority of reflux patients that get symptoms during the day and not at night. And elevating the head of the bed at night for them is, is not so critical and actually may make it more difficult for them to sleep. So I think that's kind of, there's no right or wrong answer there. I think that if you have reflux symptoms at night, you should elevate the head of your bed. If you have a lot of damage to your esophagus suggesting nocturnal reflux, you should elevate the head of your bed. But if you just get daytime symptoms without a lot of inflammation in the esophagus, when someone looks with a scope, then it's not so critical. Well, the other question, how high? I tell patients. Whatever it takes. Whatever huh? you tolerate. Yeah. <laughs> if we say four to six inches, I tell I'll settle for anything. That's good. <laughs> All right. So I assume, um, and we briefly touched on this, in terms of lifestyle changes to help with acid reflux or heartburn or GERD, losing weight and eating smaller meals. Um, what else can can someone do short of taking medications to help improve the symptoms? Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, Tom. I think the biggest things are weight loss and not overeating. And the third thing would probably be not eating, you know, if you, if you develop symptoms at night, not eating for well, three hours before going to sleep. Well, you mentioned a little bit earlier, we're talking, you know, maybe tomato type of products and food, you know, exacerbate the problem. Is it is easy for some patients? Is just 
avoiding certain foods and then they don't have any symptoms at all? Yeah, I think that there's a wide spectrum of everyone has a little bit of this. And I think that certain foods, spicy foods, chocolates, spearmint, peppermint, tomato-based foods, uh, caffeine, nicotine, alcohol may make this worse. Now, that's a, a long laundry list. And I basically tell patients, I think that if these foods bother you, chocolate's in that list, if these mm. foods bother you, uh, uh, don't take them. If they bother you in excess, don't do them in excess. But I think that it's, it's, it's very easy to think that that's going to fix the problem, and it's not. The problem is, is, is a muscular problem. It's not working. And I think the, the three things that, that Tom mentioned, bed elevation, not, not eating late, and, and not overeating are, are probably much more critical than the specific foods, unless the food's symptomatically trigger things for you. All right, so let's talk about medications because there are a lot of people out there who are taking medications for heartburn, for reflux, some over-the-counter, some uh, prescription. Talk about us, talk, Tell us about what uh, treatments you think are uh, best in both categories. Okay, well, the obviously lifestyle modifications we talked about. In pharmacologic, we have a couple lines of drugs. We have the an older drugs called H2 blockers, which is like Tagamet, Zantac, Pepsid. Those have kind of been replaced by the proton pump inhibitors, which are on every TV channel <laughs> every hour. Proton pump inhibitors. I guess we really don't need to know exactly what that means, but I guess they work, huh? Yes. It's the Prilosic, Prevacid, Nexium group. Okay. Uh, they work quite effectively. Uh, they can be taken once a day, twice a day. What they do is they turn off the acid production by the stomach. Uh, in turning off the acid production by the stomach, there's less acid, there's less less reflux. Hmm. But don't isn't there a reason that the stomach produces acid? Yeah, good question. They decrease the degree of acid produced by the stomach, but don't make it anywhere near zero. So clearly, there's enough acid left for the uh, absorption to recur, to occur. Well, like any medications, I'm sure these have some some side effects. Any that we have to be concerned about? Well, I think this has really been a hot topic in the in the press. And uh, patients walk in my office, we talk about this for the first 10 minutes now, because in the last year there's been a couple of studies out, and proton pump inhibitors have been blamed for everything from osteoporosis to loss of the ozone layer. You know, I think, uh, I think that they're, these are generally quite safe drugs. We've got reports of some kidney damage, bone fractures, heart attacks, uh, lots of things reported in big kind of retrospective studies looking backwards at databases. And we found that, well, 50,000 people on this drug had a greater incidence of kidney disease than 50,000 people off the drug. And it's always hard to interpret those because people on these drugs are sicker to begin with. They're, they take many other medications, and mm. it's generally tough to, take, to say cause and effect. Generally speaking, these are fairly safe medications. But I think the bottom line is don't take them if you don't need them. Some people can get by with the H2 blockers. Uh, uh, don't take them at a higher dose than you need them. But if you need them, they're quite effective drugs. And relative to the other options, esophageal reflux surgery, untreated disease, their complication rate is extremely low. All right. So uh, the medications work pretty effectively, but obviously don't take them if you don't need them. And as far as you are concerned, both classes of drugs are pretty safe. But you sort of indicated that the uh, H2 blockers were a little safer than the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors. Yeah, I think they're probably a little safer, but uh, they've got a long track record and haven't been associated with some of these instances. Now, some of these studies, there's been a trend toward H2 blockers, but most of them haven't. They're not used so much anymore. They're not as a 
effective. They, they, uh, they don't block acid near as well as the proton pump inhibitors. But for some people, they may be, they may be adequate. And if the medication ends up not working, um, then surgery is your next option. And what do you do when you surgically repair this? Are you fixing the valve? Are you replacing the valve? What's happening? Yeah, it, it, there's a couple of standard operations called a laparoscopic Nissen fundoplication where you basically wrap some of the patient's own material around the top bottom of the esophagus to kind of strengthen that muscle uh, with part of the stomach. And that tends to work quite well. There's a, a new endoscopic technique out called the Lynx procedure, which goes in and inserts a, a magnetic necklace around the bottom of the esophagus. Seems to cause less side effects from the Nissen. Uh, probably doesn't work quite as well as the Nissen. And, it needs a little more time to see how this further develops. So who's a candidate for surgery? I think a candidate for surgery is, well, anyone that doesn't want to take a medication, surgery is is a reasonable thing to do. Certainly, I think most of our surgery is done in people who are refractory to medication, who can't be controlled with medication with persistent symptoms. And that's generally people with a really wide-open valve right open failing muscle. And those people, you can, you can block the acid, but they still may get a lot of regurgitation of, of gastric contents, even though they're not acidic. And that group really does significantly better with surgery. All right, the final thing we've got to talk about is complications, and that is Barrett's esophagus. Or is, there, is there a problem with some of these patients with chronic reflux, been there forever, been there for years, get cancer of the esophagus? Yeah, can't the adenocarcinoma of the of the distal esophagus is lower end of the esophagus. Lower end esophagus is a disease that's rising dramatically uh, in incidence over the past uh, 15 years. Probably related to obesity, uh, uncontrolled GERD, uh, and the development of this Barrett's esophagus. So yeah, it is of concern, and reflux does increase your risk of esophageal cancer significantly. Saying that, being that, there's only still in this country 15,000 esophageal cancers versus 10 times that many colon cancers. So the vast majority of people with reflux are never going to get esophageal cancer, but it's a concern. So what you're saying is um, you need to control the GERD and you need to control the reflux if you can because it does increase your risk for esophageal cancer. Yeah, it does. Probably risk of esophageal cancer is probably five to tenfold higher in people with long-standing reflux disease, but it's an uncommon tumor. Got GERD? Well, now you know everything you need to know about it. From a world's expert, Dr. Jeff Alexander, gastroenterologist, Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss miscarriage with the Mayo Clinic OB expert. And later on in the program, we'll learn why injuring the anterior cruciate ligament of the knee is so common, especially among female athletes. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. The brain game industry is huge right now. Crosswords, Sudoku, mazes, and more. Brain games to hone your memory. But do they really work for people with Alzheimer's disease? Some of these are based in real science that, in fact, if you engage in these activities, you may keep yourself fresher and sharper for a longer period of time. The big challenge is, does this transfer into any real-life activities? We think so, but we don't know for sure. Director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, Dr. Ronald Peterson, says what they do know for sure is that keeping active mentally, physically, and socially may play a role in keeping you sharper longer. There's increasing evidence now that lifestyle modifications can affect your cognitive function going forward. 
doesn't mean that lifestyle modifications will necessarily prevent Alzheimer's disease. So why not go ahead and play those brain games, especially if you like them? And in other news, headaches, they are no fun. Bad ones can be debilitating. Cluster headaches are one of the most painful types you can have. They can wake you in the middle of the night with intense pain in or around one eye or on one side of your head. They're just awful. Now, bouts of frequent attacks called cluster periods can last from weeks to months, usually followed by remission periods when the headaches stop. During remission, no headaches happen for months and sometimes even years. Now, fortunately, cluster headaches are rare and they're not life-threatening. Treatments can make cluster headache attacks shorter and less severe, and medications can reduce the number of cluster headaches that you have. But there's no cure for cluster headaches. The goal of treatment is to decrease Increase the severity of pain, shorten the headache period, and prevent the attacks. Fast-acting medications such as triptans or local anesthetics may help. For more information, talk to your doctor or visit mayoclinic.org. And this is your Mayo Clinic Minute. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. A miscarriage. It's defined as the spontaneous loss of a pregnancy before the 20th week. And it can, of course, be an emotional and even a gut-wrenching event. And unfortunately, it's a fairly common problem. According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, 10 to 25% of known pregnancies end in miscarriage. And the actual number is believed to be much higher, since miscarriage often happens before a woman even realizes she's pregnant. Interesting. Here to talk about miscarriage is Mayo Clinic obstetrician, Dr. Yvonne Butler-Toba. Welcome to the program, Dr. Butler-Toba. Nice to have you with us. Thanks for having me. I thought that was pretty... Pretty uh, uh, amazing. I didn't realize that the percentage of women who miscarriage was quite that high. It is. Actually, most women tend not to realize they're having a miscarriage, uh, often because a miscarriage occurs before a pregnancy test is positive. So patients are often having miscarriages and thinking perhaps it's just a long menstrual cycle rather than a miscarriage. Is the 10 to 25 percent of known pregnancies end in miscarriage, is that number higher than it used to be? Um, it isn't actually higher than it used to be. We're probably just capturing uh, that number a bit better because we have uh, more sensitive screening tests. You know, we have our pregnancy tests that are a bit more sensitive than what they previously were. If a woman has a miscarriage early on, like you've just talked about, is it, would it, is it a good idea for them to come in and see you? It depends. You know, there are times when... Uh, miscarriages can actually be cared for at home. As long as a woman realizes that when she's bleeding too much um, and she's getting to the point of where she's soaking pads and feeling dizzy, those are symptoms that actually require some medical intervention. However, for the for many women, miscarriages can be completed at home. Um, it is a good idea just to check in with her um, obstetrician or women's health care provider afterwards. You mentioned that uh, miscarriages are defined, I believe, was up to 20 weeks? That is correct. What do you call it after 20 weeks if a woman loses her baby? Then it's an intrauterine fetal demise. So any pregnancy after 20 weeks is actually, cons- is actually counted as a child that was lost during a pregnancy. 
20 weeks. So that's uh, that's about halfway, isn't it? That is. Pregnancy is 40 weeks exactly. normally? Yeah. So what about risk factors? Who uh, Are there certain women who are more prone to have a miscarriage than others? Uh, yes, there is. And what's interesting is that AGS, you know, women actually advance in their careers and are becoming more professional. There's a tendency to defer childbearing until much later. Unfortunately, advanced maternal age, so after the age of 35, appears to be one of the major risk factors of having a miscarriage. Other risk factors include exposures to things like long-term tobacco use, drugs, cocaine, uh, is one of the more common ones that I can think about. Uh, there are some environmental uh, toxins we think may contribute to miscarriages, like mercury, for example, mm. hence the recommendation to avoid certain types of fish when you're pregnant. Maternal medical conditions, so poorly controlled diabetes, poorly controlled hypertension. If you take a look at those women and compare them to healthy women, you'll find that those women actually have a higher risk of miscarriages as well. If you have a mis- one miscarriage, are you likely to have another, or how does that shake? You are. So with first miscarriage, you're actually at a 30% chance of having another miscarriage. And if another miscarriage occurs, you're probably now at a a 30 to 40% chance of having a third miscarriage. After a third miscarriage, we consider that what we call recurrence miscarriages, or the more technical term is recurrence abortions. And that requires a medical consultation. And what what would you do? How would you work up this problem if a woman had had multiple miscarriages? We'll typically have her seen by either a high-risk maternal fetal medicine specialist or a reproductive endocrinologist. And the goal is to find out if there are any vascular reasons for having that miscarriage. Blood vessel. Blood vessel. Abnormal, abnormal blood vessels exactly. to, the, to the uterus. Exactly. There are also uterine anomalies. So there are certain women with... Um, the shape of their uterus is not what we expect it to be. It's either smaller than normal or there's a separation inside the uterus that prevents the pregnancy from implanting properly. That would be another thing we would look for. And how do you figure that out? Most of the times we start by imaging, and that typically tells us what it is, either an ultrasound or an MRI if, if needed. That will tell you that if the if the uterus is abnormal and not conducive to having a fetus inside. Exactly. I have a question about uh, can certain mothers have a genetic predisposition to miscarry one sex of baby? Sure. Well, there are certain genetic conditions that are seen predominantly in males and not necessarily females. So if your family is prone to those medical conditions, hemophilia is one of them that I can think about, but there are certain, there are other conditions called X-linked condition, where because a female has two X chromosomes, if one chromosome is abnormal and the other one is normal, she's likely to go on and be fine. But for a male who's an XY, there's only the one X chromosome. So if that one X chromosome is abnormal, that condition is likely then to carry on and affect that child. So, you know, there's a there's a complex array of genetic conditions that may explain why some women may predominantly, predominantly miscarry um, male infants. Where, where does the future of reducing the number of miscarriages that women experience, what does that look like? A very good question. So medical genetics is actually expanding very rapidly, especially in the field of obstetrics. We can now test the maternal blood look for fetal chromosomes and test it for some conditions. Now, that um, that field is still developing. You know, there are many ethical things, uh, ethical considerations to take into account. 
But yes, you know, we we are hoping that somewhere along the line we would be able to not only identify conditions that may later lead to a miscarriage, but then also correct for those conditions before they occur. That's further in the future. Would you say that uh, of the women that you see who have had multiple miscarriages, you are in most instances able to identify the problem and fix it? Not all the time, and not in most instances. There are, unfortunately, a number of women where we've actually screened for a, a wide array of medical conditions, determined that they had none of those conditions, and they still continue to have multiple miscarriages. And that's when it becomes a, a bit um, challenging for both the provider um, and also the patient who really just wants to know why is this occurring. So yeah. there are some women where we unfortunately have to um, diagnose multiple or recurrent abortions or miscarriages with no identifiable cause. And you mentioned the patients are, we're running out of time, but what do you do to help counsel emotional the emotional needs of a patient once she's had a miscarriage? Very good question. You know, I think the one thing we really focus on is um, informing patients that it is not their fault. You know, the, the, the primary thought of most women who've had a miscarriage is, what did I do wrong? And our primary message is, you did nothing wrong. You know, we think that most miscarriages um, early on are because of chromosomal anomalies. There are some modifiable risk factors, but for the most part, there isn't anything that the woman can do. And currently, there isn't much in terms of preventing that miscarriage from occurring that we can do medically once we've diagnosed that that miscarriage is in process. So so just comforting the uh, woman to know that it isn't her fault and also that most women who have miscarriages actually go on to carry normal full-term babies. Good news. Dr. Yvonne Butler-Toba, obstetrician at the Mayo Clinic on miscarriage. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll learn about the all-too-common knee injury involving the anterior cruciate ligament, or ACL. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, we've all heard the acronym ACL, which stands for anterior cruciate ligament in the knee. And a torn ACL is an all-too-common injury for a lot of athletes. For example, Tom Brady, Tiger Woods, to mention just a couple. An injury to the ACL is usually caused by a sudden deceleration or landing maneuver with the leg in a vulnerable position. Although ACL injuries are most often seen in team sports, 70% are incurred with little or no contact with another athlete. Pretty amazing, huh? With us to talk about ACL injuries is the co-director of the Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Center, Dr. Ed Laskowski. Dr. Laskowski, always good to have you on the program. Thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here, Tom and Tracy. Thank now, you. I have a question because Dr. Shive said Tom Brady and Tiger Woods are people who we know, famous athletes who've had ACL tears. But don't female athletes have ACL issues more than male athletes? That's right, Tracy. It's about a six to eight times increased incidence in female athletes. And uh, we've we've looked at this problem for many years now and studied uh, what could be going on. And, and the answer is there's probably a bunch of different things going on. Um, the female anatomy, there's a little bit more of a sharper notch in the knee where the anterior cruciate ligament lives. Um, it's shorter in females. It does respond to hormonal influences. There's hormone receptors in the ligament itself. Hmm. Um, and there's also neuromuscular patterns that are different in females and males, meaning they, they kind of activate muscles differently. So um, while it's prevalent in both sexes, there certainly is a female predominance. So what's happening when an ACL tears? What, what is going on? Yeah, the usual mechanism. 
as Tracy said, it's usually a non-contact injury, and it's kind of a cut-pivot deceleration. So you can think of a wide receiver going out in a straight pattern, then planting that right foot and cutting to the left. That that abrupt deceleration of body weight and then changing direction to the other side. Basketball so, players coming down with a rebound. Exactly. Uh, soccer players, as you can imagine, going after the ball, sure. planting, cutting, pivoting. So those are, are sports that are prime at risk. Skiing is very much at risk. I actually myself tore my ACL many years ago skiing. I used to ski competitively. And, uh, you know, the ski is a very long lever arm and you have a very rigid boot, which translates a lot of force to the knee. So the ACL means anterior cruciate ligament. Cruciate means cross. There's two crossing ligaments in the middle of your knee, the anterior cruciate ligament and then also the posterior cruciate ligament. So anterior front, posterior back. Right, and and the anterior cruciate ligament controls the forward movement of the lower leg bone. So when we examine you for this, um, we may have you lie down. We may actually pull on that lower leg bone and see how far forward it moves. One of our gold standard tests called the Lachman assesses this. And if a, if an individual has torn their ACL, we will continue to be able to move that bone forward. There will be no catch or stop because that ligament is torn. No, I just got to ask you, did you have yours repaired? You know, I didn't. Um, when I found out, I, I was already in medical school, and it was a number of years ago. And uh, that's the thing is, uh, you know, we're finding out so much about this injury. We, we used to think that early repair prevented or, or really lessened the incidence of arthritis later in life. We're now finding out that whether you have your ACL reconstructed or not, um, the incidence of arthritis is about the same. Mm-hmm. And in people who are very active two years after their reconstruction, the incidence is almost higher. So, you know, we really want to prevent this injury. I mean, we have good surgery. We have, um, you know, Adrian Peterson is an example of somebody who got back out there, best year ever in the NFL he had after his reconstruction. But is he at risk in the future because of that injury, just because he sustained that injury? He is at increased risk. Increased risk for arthritis. Right. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, now that's sort of new information, isn't it? Well, we're finding that more and more throughout the years, and uh, we used to think that, again, the reconstruction would prevent that, but uh, we find now that we're... Just the as, opposite. Well, we're following people over the years, and we're finding out that, boy, they, they have a lot of the same, and, and people who are really active, they, they may have increased incidence. We also find that, again, we talk about that neuromotor pattern, that there's probably something in the muscle activation pattern of that individual. Oftentimes, it will go on to, to tear the other ACL and hmm. the other knee. So, you know, the sport that is played, if we don't do things to prevent, and also if we reconstruct and don't do things to correct the bad movement pattern, that individual still may be at risk. Let's talk about that don't do things to prevent list that you just referred to. So so the thing that we look at the most is something we call that dynamic medial knee valgus. And we can assess that quite simply. We have people do a single leg squat in the office, and we see how they control their lower leg. Ideally, the kneecap should go right over the foot. There should be almost a straight line as they do that move. What we see with people predisposed to ACL injury is the knee will dive inward. We call that dynamic, meaning movement, medial, inward, knee valgus. So kind of the knee goes inward. Um, Oftentimes, we'll have them kind of jump down from a box, too, and we'll see the knees almost hit together Mm -hmm. instead of kind of being firm and, and straight on the landing. So... When we do that, we'll find out, well, that person is predisposed to having an ACL injury. Why is he looking at me? Well, <laughs> you're, a, you're a woman. You're <laughs> six am, to eight times more likely to have this problem. And that does happen. That's true, yes. How about braces? You know, you see some football uh, teams where, where the linemen are wearing braces, and uh, most of, uh, a fair number of them not. Is, is there any proof that wearing a brace uh, will prevent an ACL injury? 
No, there's not, Tom. Even uh, in the motocross um, domain years ago, that that's a high-risk one, too, because people are putting their legs down to get the bike around a turn, and there was a fairly high incidence of ACL injury, and they tried to prophylactically fit these people with ACL braces and found them coming into the ER with an eight torn ACL with the brace on. So the the internal structure, the knee, the, the, the muscle tissue, you can't control that externally that well. Now, some people we will brace if they have had an ACL tear and they choose non-operative treatment and they want to maybe play a moderate risk activity, say doubles tennis or something like that, then a brace can be helpful. And we're finding out, again, more ways in which that happens. Usually that brace just makes the muscles contract a little bit better um, around the joint to stabilize the knee. It's not really the mechanical support of the brace itself. So if the key is, you know, you weed out these folks who, when they do that single knee bend, the knee pops in, you're training them to not do that. Right. How do you train people to not do that? It's a good question. We we actually use a lot. It's not exactly weight training, but as much more movement training. And we're training that perfect movement. So a lot of times we'll we'll use a tubing wrapped around their hips or ankles. We'll have them stride forward and to the side with that tubing, and we'll give them feedback. The, for, a lot of times it's good for them to do it in front of a mirror so they can see how the knee is moving as they do that movement pattern. And it's almost it's repetition. It's it's not the hardware oftentimes. And when we when we test strength in these individuals, it's they actually have pretty good strength in some of the hip muscles, but it's actually the, the software, the, the wiring and the way. So we, we have to kind of soft, software repair that uh, over and over again so they get good movement patterns established that won't put them at risk. If you don't have your ACL repaired uh, and don't do rehab, is that are you at uh, is your knee unstable are you more likely to get arthritis i mean is the how important is the rehab following the injury if you don't have surgery or if you do well, I think it's it's very important. Um, we do find in general there's almost a rule of thirds. A, a third of people with this injury um, will do very well. And even without the reconstruction, they have the neuromotor control to, to kind of control themselves quite nicely. Um, on the other extent, the extent of the spectrum, the other third will do not that well. And they'll be, if they step off a curb, their knee will give way. If they step out of the shower, their knee will give way. We call that functional instability. Those individuals also probably should consider ACL reconstruction. But there's a big middle ground, and we're trying to tease out now, again, tests and functional activities we can we can have people do to see where they fall in those categories. But in any category, improving the strength of the muscles, improving the neuromotor control, so again, those movement patterns so they move appropriately, that's going to be protective. And, and one of the biggest things is actually avoiding the risk-type things. So for myself, I used to love to play volleyball and basketball, but um, you know, I kind of consciously gave those up. I said, those are too much of a risk for me. So I do a whole bunch of other things, but I don't do the risk things that could put my knee in a position where it might give way or become unstable. All right. Great information on the ACL ligament. Dr. Ed Laskowski, co-director of the Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Center. And when we leave here, Tracy, do not cut, (laughs) pivot, and decelerate. I will not. Thanks, Dr. Laskowski. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.